Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. We are the land of the free, aren't we? And I have been caused this morning to think back over my own heritage and how my first ancestor and his family came here in the 1670s and landed in Maryland, made their way eventually to the state of Tennessee. And when they found the promised land, they didn't bother to go anywhere else. It's great being Tennessean. But also, I don't know about whether my ancestors any fought in the Revolutionary War. I would be surprised if some of them didn't. But what I do know is my great-great-grandfather was in the fight for preserving the Union and freeing African-Americans from slavery. And he and his brother served in prison at Andersonville Prison and almost died there. And my great uncle was in World War I. My own father and three of his four brothers were in World War II, served with distinction. And I'm just grateful for all the men and women who have put their lives in harm's way in order that we could have such freedom. And I'm certainly grateful that God has shed His grace on us. That's a prayer we sang, shed His grace on us us, but it could be read two different ways. He did in the past shed His grace on us, didn't He? And we are the recipients, and to whom much is given, much is required. And we have a great debt we owe to the Lord and to our fellow countrymen and to our fellow citizens, actually. We as Christians perhaps should say, Instead of, God bless America, bless God, America. That's really probably should be the theme of our hearts. And I know that would be true of the people whom I know who are part of our church, at least. Now, all that was free. It has nothing to do with the sermon, I don't guess. Maybe it does. But I'm going to ask you to turn with me to the book of First Kings. And we're going to look in a moment at 1 Kings 9 and then also a bit later, 1 Kings 11. According to Americans today, what is the state of America? Are Americans satisfied with the country and the direction in which it is going? A fresh poll by the Gallup people, a very reliable polling source, indicates that as of June the 20th of this year, just a few days ago, 87% of Americans are dissatisfied with the direction of our country. The economy is very shaky. I just read where two indicators back-to-back -back months, the rate of inflation would 
indicate and deflation in terms of goods and services being rendered and sought has put us in a recession mode. And certainly those things are disturbing to most of us. I might just say this before I forget it. I perhaps would if I don't say it when it comes to my mind. But we know Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Matthew 6, and I've taken this to heart all my adult life. I've been independent of my father and mother for 51 years. And from the beginning, I believe what Jesus says. I still stand by it and will until I take my last breath. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things necessaries is what he's talking about for life will be added to you. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. Each day has enough trouble of his own. We just trust Christ, don't we? We know that we who know him are under his protection and we know we're under his provision. What a mighty God we serve and what a great kingdom we are part of, adopted in the family of God. Amazing. The economy is shipwrecked, it seems, or at least heading in that direction. And we could go into every other area of life. We read regularly, hear things that seem to be threats from our enemies, as it were, from Iran or from China or from Pakistan and any number of other nations who would just love to occupy the position we have been granted in the history of this nation, almost 250 years since the Declaration of Independence was signed and this nation got its start. Those people are barking and trying to intimidate and they're working feverishly to unseat us from the privileged position that God has given us. And that's troublesome for us also. The question we really need to ask, and we will do so with the remainder of the time we share together, is not what opinion are we really tied to, opinion polls of America in general, or are we people who understand the state of America according to God in his word? And we're going to take a look into that and try to be honest, not trying to sensationalize anything, but to be honest with what we see and hear. We are to evaluate our personal lives and our church's life the status of the church in America. I'm using the term in its broadest sense when I talk about the status of the church. I'm talking about churches all over this country. What do we look like to the world? Remember, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says this about us as believers. He says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, and I mean, they were very precise about keeping the law as they understood it. They had a gross misunderstanding of much of it, but our righteousness must surpass the righteousness of a Pharisee. The Pharisees giving to a meticulous 
meticulous observation of the law of Moses and all the things associated with it over the many centuries before Christ came. We are not to be people who are people who are bound only by the letter of the law, Jesus says, but we are people who are to have the law that is characteristic of the kingdom of Christ in the world. So, we also are told by Jesus in that same Sermon on the Mount, in the sixth chapter, this is easily overlooked, but when Jesus is teaching on prayer in the sixth chapter of Matthew, he talks about the fact that we are not to be like them is the literal translation. And the antecedent of them would be Gentiles, people who are considered pagans by the Jewish establishment. So Christians are to be different, different from legalists, people who portray themselves as Christians, who really aren't, but people who are just by abiding by the law of God only and their interpretation of it, or we are not to be like people who don't know the Lord, people who don't care. And there's a growing number of those people. According to what I can gather, I read a report from the Barna Group, which is a Christian polling group trying to keep the pulse of the church in America the finger on the pulse of, of a church of, in America. A recent survey shows that 64% of all people in the millennial category have who were in church when they entered adulthood are no longer in church. Almost two-thirds. The good news in that research indicates that those who have stayed the course in the millennial group, those people have a more commit, committed relationship with Jesus Christ than do older people. Now, I don't know what constitutes older. I know I'm in that group, and most of you are too. But that's encouraging to me. I hope it would be encouraging to you. And 10% of that group are really sold out. Jesus only took 12 men and turned the world upside down. And that's very encouraging to me when I consider the people who are following Jesus in the category, the rather arbitrary category in some cases of millennials. We are to be different. We'll look a little bit more about that a little later. Let's get some perspective from the Bible. If we're to take our cues from the Word of God, and we are, let's look at 1 Kings chapter 9. And as I read through here, I'm going to make some observations and also suggest some application that we can make from this passage. 1 Kings chapter 9 in the New American Standard Bible reads this way. Now it came about when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to do that the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. You may remember when Solomon was starting his rule as king, he was nervous and who wouldn't be? 
First of all, he was following his father who was a legend. And sometimes when we hear the word legend, we conclude that that's something that's really inflated, the picture that's painted of such a person. But with David, it was not something that was inflated. He was the real deal. He was the greatest king of all the kings. And here this 20-year-old son, Solomon, is taking the reins. And he's visited by God at Gibeon in a dream. And God speaks to him and he says to him, I'm going to give you, and this is my interpretation, I'm going to give you one wish. And whatever you wish for, you'll get. Solomon thought it over and he said, may I have wisdom? He didn't ask for money and wealth. He didn't ask for admiration. He simply asked the Lord for wisdom. That was a great moment for Solomon and contributed to us in a way because he did get wisdom. He squandered it. We're going to see that in just a moment. He squandered most of that, however. Sounds like me sometimes. You ever get wisdom from the Lord and just frit it away? Squander it from the Word of God. The Scripture goes on to say in verse 3, The Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer, and I wish we had time. I encourage you to read this prayer that Solomon prayed. It's recorded. It is an incredible prayer. It shows that he knew God, and he was devoted to God. He said, I have heard your prayer and your supplication, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house, and this house was the temple. Now, please understand, the temple was the place where God ordained for the Ark of the Covenant to be. And that was the place that the high priest would go annually. And the high priest would pray for favor from God and forgiveness from God for the people. What sins they had committed the previous year on Yom Kippur. And so it was that place. It was a sacred place. It was not a really large building. When you do the math and see the dimensions of it, it was not really that big. It was surprising how small it was, but it was a sacred place. Very important. We know now that we who know Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, we are a temple of God. I hope you know that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the Bible speaks of it, speaking in the plural. Do you not know that you are a temple of God's Spirit? This body of believers, we are here today. And every time we gather, we are here in the name of Christ, and the Holy Spirit is with us as a body. That in itself would invite me to be here every chance I get, even if I did not have the responsibility of being a pastor teacher in this church, I would want to be somewhere with the people of God because that's where the Holy Spirit is. But we also know later from 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter, Paul poses this question similar to the first one, and it could easily be mistaken for the first one in its intent. But what we see here, he's talking about you as an individual. What do you not know 
that your body, Mike Woods, is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you and you are not your own. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Wow. And so what we know here is the church now is the temple of God. It's not a temple made with hands, the Bible says. In the book of 1 Peter chapter 2, I love this image that the Holy Spirit uses to describe the church. You know what it says. He says through the writer Peter that this temple that he is building is a temple made out of living stones. What's he getting at? It's made out of people who know Christ and each one of us has a role to play in the life of the church. Each one of us is significant because we've been chosen by God, not because of their being any kind of inherent greatness in any of us or goodness. There is none good, no, not one, the Bible says. So God in His grace has chosen us and He has built a temple, hasn't He? And hence, when we think about the temple as it's mentioned here, in the book of First Kings and then later in the book of Second Chronicles as we visit there, we need to remember that the church is the temple of God now. The temple's long gone. It will be rebuilt, I believe, before Jesus comes back. We've talked about that previously. So let's go ahead in verse 4. As for you, if you will walk before me as your father David walked in integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and will keep my statutes and my ordinances, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, just as I promised to your father, David, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. David, to this day, has not lacked a man on the throne of Israel. Counting David, there were 21 kings. You start with David, and you go down, and then David's descendants were not sitting on the throne of the northern kingdom, Israel, after the civil war which occurred, there were many different dynasties, if you will, people who sat on that throne. But if you'll follow the line of David through Judah, there are 21 individuals. I took the time to look at all 21 of them in some detail in preparation for today's message. And what I discovered of those 21, there were three whom we could call good kings. Three out of 21, one out of seven. There were seven who were good most of the time, but they had an evil streak in them too. I could relate to that group better than the first group for sure. And then there were 11 who were wicked. And they... David and his descendants sat for 478 years. That's a long time, isn't it? That's a dynasty. And not many dynasties have lasted that long in any country, but it was a dynasty. I began to calculate the good kings. How long were they sitting on the throne of Israel, as it were? And it added up to exactly 100 years. Then I took a look at those kings which were good most of the time, but had a tendency to walk away, 
to different degrees. There were 214 years there. So that accounts for 314 of the 478. That leaves 164 years of bad kings. David, I've already said, he's the prototype. Now we know he had a big, big sin he committed, taking another man's wife, having that man put to death along with 29 or so fighting companions. He was guilty of the blood of Uriah and guilty of stealing his wife and all those other people in his household was a mess after that. We don't need to go into that. But what we do know is that David, except in the case of Uriah, this is what the Bible says. It's in the writings of 1 Kings and also in 1 Chronicles, that except for the matter of Uriah, David walked in integrity in all ways. He is the prototype. And then the other two of his descendants, quite a ways down the line, I might add, one was Hezekiah. And Hezekiah was a man whose father was a ne'er-do-well as a king. And Hezekiah, when he came in to the role of king, one of the first things which Hezekiah did was he gave orders that the priests would go into the temple and clean it out because the temple had fallen into disarray. And the way in which people ignored the true worship of God had left it almost as if it were just a museum, if not a mausoleum. And what we see is that God used this young man when he became king, and he ordered, and it took the priest 10 days to clean it out. Now remember, it's not a big place, but it took all that time. And it's symbolic, I believe, of how we as the church today, and individuals, of course, but we as a church, we need to evaluate our own standing before the Lord. We know we're fixed in Christ. If we know Christ, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Him. But on the other hand, we need to see if we have fallen prey to wanting to do things to please people as opposed to having as our only person we want to really please being God Himself. We need to do that. Hezekiah was one of the other of the three kings, David, Hezekiah, and then almost to the end of the history of David's having someone sitting on the throne was Josiah. And I'd like you to turn to Second Corinth Kings for just a moment and to the 25th chapter, Second Kings. Actually, it's the 23rd chapter of Second Kings. Second Kings chapter 23. High, high, high compliment paid to Josiah in verse 25 of Second Kings 23. Before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart. He repented when he recognized having told the priest Hilkiah to do somewhat like Hezekiah, his forefather, had told the priest to do there in the 
situation of cleansing the temple. And in the process, what happened was the book of the law was found. What is the book of the law? It would be the Old Testament scriptures in effect. The book of the law was found and it was read. It was read to Josiah. Josiah was just a child when he became king. And the result was a change in Josiah and a fervor for God. And both Hezekiah and he did something that no other king, going back to Solomon, had done. Out of the 20 kings who followed David, only two of them did what he and Hezekiah, his forefather, did. And that was to destroy the high places. Have you ever noticed that phrase about these kings? They did reform after reform after reform, except they did not destroy the high places. What were the high places? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'll get to that in just a moment. In verse 25 says of chapter 23 of 2 Kings, before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul, with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him rise after him. However, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath with which his anger burned against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. Manasseh. Who was Manasseh? Well, he was the son of Hezekiah, believe it or not. Hezekiah, a great king a role model, but his son went bad in a hurry. And we're going to talk a little bit about that in just a moment too. The Lord said, I will remove Judah also from my sight as I have removed Israel, and I will cast off Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen, and the temple of which I said my name shall be there. Manasseh. This man reigned for 55 years longer than any king in the history of Judah. And this man was wicked to the max. He sacrificed his own child to the false god of Molech. He passed his child through the fire to try to appease this pagan god. He did all kinds of things. The Bible says about him in the book of 2 Kings that the blood that he shed ran from one end of Jerusalem to the other. Innocent blood that he shed. This man was a wicked, wicked man. And this man was the father, was the, excuse me, the son of Hezekiah. And because Manasseh had been so heinous in his committing sin, total disregard for the Lord God. What happened was, even though Josiah made this great turnaround, I would have thought if I had not known better, I would have said if I'm reading and I'm seeing this revival that occurs, one occurred under Hezekiah and smaller ones under other good, but slightly tainted, in some ways greatly tainted kings, I would have thought, wow, God's going to give it one more shot with these people. But God said, no, not even 
a leader like him could cause me to ignore the gross sin that this nation has committed for over 400 years. And the result was, as you know, the end of Jerusalem for a period of time, at least 70 years, was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. It was another several hundred years before it was rebuilt. And so we see that God is a God who is not to be mocked. He will not be mocked. We know in the book of Exodus 34, verse 6, I'm going to read it to you. I should have it memorized. 34, verse 6, the Bible says, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Would you say God was slow to anger with Israel? Four centuries Unbelievable. Slow to anger, it says. Abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. It's the heart of the God. A lot of times people want to separate the God of the Old Testament, as they say, from the God of the New Testament. That's heresy. It's the same God. What we fail to realize is the New Testament only covers about a 60 year period of time, whereas the Old Testament covers about 3,500 years of time. So there's a lot more opportunity for man to rebel, isn't there, in that period of time. And so we see here what God goes on to say. He says, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children, on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. So our God is a God who, in order to maintain His own holiness, must punish sin. And this is where David's current son, if you will, still is on the throne of the people of God. We know Him as Jesus Christ. And Jesus became sin for us. He volunteered. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin in order that we might become right with God. Amazing. I'd like you to look at 1 Kings 11 for just a moment. And we're going to see how all the downward tilt of Israel got started and how it went on for over 400 years except for the reigns of Hezekiah and Josiah. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away from their gods. This is a quotation from the 34th chapter, again, of Exodus. This was a warning. It was a command. Solomon held fast to these in love. He had 700 wives. Can you imagine it? And 300 concubines. In effect, he had 1,000 women that he had to take care of. And the Scripture says, His heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, 
This is the female counterpart to Baal or Baal, as we call a fertility goddess. And he went after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. You remember Moab and Ammon were the offspring of Lot when in a drunken state, his daughters came to him when he was drunk and had intercourse with him and they both conceived and their names were Ammon and Moab. And they were a burr in the saddle of Israel going forward. The Ammonites and the Moabites. Let's look again at the passage of Scripture. Verse 6, Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place, ah, for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus also he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Here's the temptation for us as a local church. It's to accommodate ourselves to the world. To want to be a popular church. To want to be popular with other people. Now, we don't have to go out of our way to try to make enemies. No. If we know Jesus and we love Him and we follow Him, it's a given we're going to have people who just downright hate us. Jesus talked about it on more than one occasion. He says in the 16th chapter of John, look, if you think you had trouble, think again. Look at me. You've seen the kind of trouble I've had. You're going to see more about it later. And we are people who will suffer tribulation in this world. And God's grace will be sufficient for us when we do. We don't have to start a fight with anybody. We just have to tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have to live differently. We have to speak the truth about any matter that comes up in our lives and in our sphere and have a heart to be used by God to help people who don't know God through Christ to come to know Him. Verse 8 of 11 of 1 Kings, thus also He did for all His foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. So He was complicit, wasn't He, with the worship of the false gods. He enabled the worship, all in the name of, I guess, diplomacy, make all these alliances with women from different parts of the region whose lineage went to the king. And so we see the danger in compromise. And as Jesus read earlier from 2 Chronicles 7, did you catch what the Word of God says there? We love to quote 2 Chronicles 7, 14, if my people who are called by my name, will hear, hear my voice, and they will do as I say, and they'll turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven, and what will he do? He will forgive their sin, our sin, and heal their land. 
The answer to the healing of the United States is not some political party or political figure. The answer is Jesus Christ. And we need to get right with the Lord individually and ask Him to search us and show us individually what there is in our lives that we may still be hanging on to because it's something we enjoy, but we know it's not what God wants for us. But we need to be men and women who ask God, God, give me a love for you that supersedes my love of myself in order that I could be useful to you. But verse 13, very rarely quoted in context with 14, but it's important. Look at what God says. If I, what, shut up the heavens so that there's no rain. I'm beginning to get a little concerned about that in my own personal life because where I live, it's like a donut hole. Every place around me gets rain. The Lord's shutting up the heavens, you know. I don't mean to make light of that drought. Look at the western part of the United States. Lake Powell is in danger of drying up. Unbelievable. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or I send locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence, does that ring a bell for us? To see the hand of God working in order to get the attention of His people so that His people who are called by His name shall humble themselves and pray and seek His face and turn from our wicked ways. The Bible says in 1 Peter 4.17, I haven't ever heard a sermon taught on this, but listen to what it says. It says, judgment begins in the house of the Lord. Talking about the church. The revival of America is a revival. In order to, there to be a revival, first of all, there has to be revival. You know what I mean? There has to be life, spiritual life. And consequently, we need to be willing to let God have His way with us and point us in the direction of commitment to Him if we are going to have an impact on our nation. Question is, is it too late for the United States of America? I, I can't answer that question. I don't know. I don't think anybody in here does. But what we know is this. There have been moments in the history of our nation when things were equally bad. We haven't lived through some of those moments, most of us. But let me just talk to you about two major events well documented in history. This were not simple one-time, one-week kind of events. They were periods of both the 18th and the 19th century. The first great awakening. The name Jonathan Edwards is associated with that. This highly intellectual guy. Europeans, when they thought of who is the most intelligent, clear-thinking person in the colonies, the name Jonathan Edwards would come up over and over again. I'm not going to talk about him in any detail. But also the Wesley brothers, they were missionaries. Edwards had been born in the colonies. The Wesleys born in England. The Wesleys were part of that too. But I'm going to talk about a man who knew both of them. 
We might call him Mr. In-Between, not because he was lax in his commitment to the Lord, but he fell in between and was influenced by Edwards and the Wesleys, George Whitfield. Whitfield went to Oxford. His father had died when he was two years old. His mother had seven children, Whitfield being the youngest. And she went seven years as a widow. Finally, a man saw the value in her. This person married and he had a stepdad. He went to Oxford and he immediately was approached by Wesley, Charles Wesley, to be precise, the younger brother of John. And he invited him to join his older brother and six other men who formed a group. And this group was committed to living a disciplined Christian life. At the time, it's not sure whether they were believers. I'm talking about Charles and John. But they met, nonetheless. They were called in derision by their classmates, the Holy Club. And they liked that name. They, they said, yeah, we are the Holy Club. And the cr group grew. Whitfield was very much engaged with all the things that they focused on. Daily time alone with, the God, with God, praying and fasting, reaching out to the poor and the disenfranchised in their area. Somehow or another, a book by a man named Henry Skugel. Mr. Skugel was a Scottish Puritan, and it had to do with the life of God. The topic was the life of God in the soul of man. And what happened? Whitfield was exposed for the first time in his life. He was 20 years old. He was exposed to the fact that unless a person is born again, the person cannot enter the kingdom of God. And he wrestled with that. He wanted to throw the book away. In fact, he tried to on several occasions, but he kept coming back to it. And he was shown that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. All wrongdoing is sin. That you only have to commit one sin to put you in the category of a sinner separated from God due to your sin. He finally, after much soul searching, got on his knees and said, Lord, I am not born again. Would you please give me a second birth? And the Lord answered immediately. And this man began to be used as a young man. By the time he was 23, he was ordained into the Anglican church. He began to preach in individual churches. The places were packed out because his message was the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. People were getting saved left and right. And the authorities, those who were above him, they didn't appreciate this young buck coming in there and disrupting the order that they liked in their church services. So he was forbidden to preach in churches until further notice. What he did, he went out and began to preach in public. And within days, actually days, he would see crowds of up to 800 or 1,000 people coming to hear him preach in the open air. He became aware of what was going on in Bristol, which was an industrial, really a coal mining town, large town. And he went and he gathered a bunch of coal miners and their families began to preach to them. 
Within 30 days, there were 10,000 coal miners and families coming to hear this man preach. And people were getting saved hand over fist. Unbelievable what the Spirit of God was doing. This is the beginning of the first great awakening, actually. And as time unfolded, he came across the ocean. He made 13 crossings between England and the colonies. And it was here in this United States, as we call it, in the eastern part, where the Spirit of God came down mightily in conjunction with what God had done already through Jonathan Edwards would do also through the Wesleys here. It happened through this man. Benjamin Franklin, not known for being a Christian at all. He was a deist. But he really became enchanted with Whitfield. He heard him speak. He was mesmerized. And he offered to publish and probably asked for permission to publish his sermons. And Whitfield obliged. And he said about him that the people who gave their lives to Christ, whom he knew under the preaching of Whitfield, this is Ben Franklin saying this, he said there was a dramatic change in those people. These people were different. They were changed. And he said that it seemed as if all of Philadelphia, that's where Franklin lived, you know, all of Philadelphia was being changed. All that people would be talking about when he'd go out in the streets was what God was doing through George Whitfield. He also said that before Whitfield left, there were occasions when he knew of there were 30,000 people listening to this man preach. No amplification except his voice. That's a miracle in itself, isn't it? People coming to Christ. I wish we could talk about the second great awakening. We don't have time for that today. I encourage you to do your own research there. One name that you might look at is a man by the name of Francis Asbury. He was a Methodist who came as a missionary, like Whitfield did, and God used him. When he got to the United States, there were only 300 lay people who considered themselves attached to the Methodist church. Being a Methodist doesn't make you any, a Christian any more than being a Baptist makes you a Christian. Understand that. But I'm just giving you some stats. He ministered for 40 years here. He traveled on horseback, according to his own records, 300,000 miles. He classed, went over and back the Appalachian Mountains at least six times. When he left, there were 200,000 laymen in the United Methodist Church is called today. It's not that anymore. 200,000 people. And when there had been four pastors, there were 2,000 ministers in that church. This guy, guy was used among others. Charles Finney was another one. And then a man by Timothy Dwight, one of the descendants of Jonathan Edwards. But we, I say all this to say, we have seen great awakenings. And the question is, could there be another great awakening in this country? And we should not look at such an awakening just so he won't, the Lord won't abandon the United States of America. That is not the right motive. Rather, we should want that so that God will be glorified in a way he has not been glorified in this country for over 200 years. Wouldn't you like that?
to see that happen. That's what we need to pray for. We need to remember what Jesus says about his kingdom when he's asked by Pilate. You remember what he said? Pilate said, are you the king of the Jews? He said, it is as you say. Jesus said to him, didn't mince words. And then Jesus did say to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. When Jesus was speaking to a group of Pharisees, they were asking him about the location of his kingdom. They were very sarcastic, I'm sure. And he says, my kingdom is among you. Jesus is the king, wherever he is. And his kingdom is an invisible kingdom to a great degree. In Romans 14, 17, Paul writes, he says, the kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking. Rather, it's about righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. That's the kingdom of God, and it transcends all barriers, all geographical barriers, all ethnic barriers, all kinds of barriers. You name a barrier, and it surpasses this. The gospel, the kingdom of God, is based on the person of Jesus Christ. And the Bible says, if you know Jesus your primary citizenship, according to Philippians 3.20, I believe it with all my heart. My primary citizenship, just like it was not the primary citizenship of the Philippians who knew Jesus Christ. And do you know anything about Philippi? Do you know anything that would have caused the Philippians to be proud of being members of that city? It was a colony of Rome. Only a few conquered cities in Rome, held a distinction of being a colony, meaning it was as if they were in Rome themselves. They were proud of it. And what does the Lord say to them through Paul? Your citizenship's in heaven. Our primary citizenship is in heaven. We must be model citizens of heaven and earth. The United States, I love it. I love it so much. I'm so grateful for it. And we should be good citizens on earth. We are citizens of heaven. Listen to what the Bible says. I wish we had time to go into this in great length. The Bible says, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. If the salt has lost its flavor, it's good for nothing except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. We are salt and light. That means we are preservatives and we are people who should not simply preserve the culture but to shed the light of Jesus Christ on it so people can really be set free. This is who we are. This is our primary role in this life if we know Jesus Christ. And we also need to remember that we are to pray for those in authority. This becomes hard for me a lot of the time because I don't agree with the politics with some people in office, but I'm not reading the text properly when it says pray for all, including, including the king. You know who the king was? Nero. Have you heard of Nero? He was the arch enemy of Christianity. Pray for him. And then Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 2. Honor the king. Honor the emperor. This is the way we are to be. 
There is a caveat, listen very carefully. And that caveat, that exception would be this, that I must obey God instead of man. When there is something the government tells me to do that contradicts what God wants, I'm to politely say no, but firmly say no. And that is what should be characteristic of you and me. If we looked at Romans 13, read Romans 13. See what you get there. We are to be model citizens as Christians in, of heaven. If we're doing that, we're going to be model citizens on earth. Let me just give you some encouragement here about what we are to be like. We are to be people who always come before the Lord in hopes of His showing us how we might be more like Christ and making adjustments that would be repenting of behaviors or attitudes that are incompatible with the person of Jesus Christ. We need to be people who share the gospel without shame or fear. We're not to be afraid of the intimidation that the world foists upon us. The devil hates Christians, and he is a bully. And we're not to be afraid of our adversary, the devil, who lurks around like a roaring lion. He can make it scary. But we're just to remember that the Bible says on 365 separate occasions, do not fear. That's great, isn't it? I don't know if the Lord had that in mind when we went to a 365-day-a-year calendar. Probably not, but it, it preaches good, doesn't it? It's pretty cool. Don't be angry. I mean, we need to be angry at the devil. We need to be angry at injustices. But we need not to transfer that into the kind of anger that want, would want to hurt somebody. Remember what Jesus says. One of the ways we're to be different, read the Sermon on the Mount. Study it carefully. What he says is this. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Did Jesus practice what he preached? From the cross, what was the first thing he said? Do you remember? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. He's talking about the people who were gambling for his garments, the people who had nailed him to the cross. Can you believe that? Jesus practices what he preaches. And he sets the example. We're to imitate Christ, aren't we? We're to let Christ live in us, dwell in us, be himself through us, if we're to be the kind of citizen God would have us to be. Let me give you five suggestions here as we go to the conclusion about how we're to relate to our leaders and the politics. Here's the first one. We're to pray faithfully for our leaders' wisdom. Remember Cyrus, how God used him to set the captives free to go back to reestablish Jerusalem and Judah? Do you remember that? Cyrus was a pagan. God moved. The Bible says the king's heart is like a stream of water in the hand of God. God directs it whichever way he wishes. We need to pray fervently for leaders that God would give them wisdom. Here's the second thing. Exercise your right to vote and encourage others to vote. 
There's nothing wrong with our doing that. And we would want to vote according to biblical principles. Read your word. When you study the word, you have some thoughts in your mind now that will be revolutionized about various things that are at stake in elections. The third thing is some Christians should run for office and serve as advisors in certain situations. Not everyone. There's a, a woman in our church who is running for the second time to be elected as the Republican candidate for the House of Representatives seat that our area is part of. Irene Armendaris Jackson, dear lady, loves the Lord, solid as a rock. And she's taken that suggestion seriously. Here's the fourth thing. Some need to stay completely away from political arena. It's true. I'm one of those people. I mean, I love politics. It, it was what I thought I would be doing with my life when the Lord finally said, this is not what I want you to do. And I said, okay, Lord. And I put it in the rear view mirror, sort of. But I still love politics. I have to be careful in that area. Leave it to the brothers and sisters that the Lord calls into that arena. Pray for them. Support them. Here's the last thing. Don't be addicted to partisanship. Here's a test. Are you as motivated by fulfilling the great commission of Jesus Christ as you are by your politics? Are you as excited in a positive way about sharing Jesus with people as you are about wreaking havoc on the other side of the issue. Are you? Do you have as much passion? You should have more passion for that. If you're a Christian, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are commissioned to preach the gospel. And I'm not talking about like in a place like this. You're commissioned to share the gospel. As surely as the first apostles were, you are in that category if you're a child of God. And we need to balance our lives according to the book of the law, the Word of God, and see what God does. This land could be changed if just the group here today took that to heart. Just this group. He did it with 12 men. There are probably 200 or so here this morning, and there'll be another 300. There were about 100 here last night. If we just began to do this, phenomenal. Thank you, Lord for giving us citizenship in heaven that causes all of us to be able to make a difference. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the Word of God. Thank you for our country. Thank you for all those who have put themselves in harm's way to secure freedom for our nation and to keep it free. And we pray for our aren't leaders in the area of government and military. We pray for them, Lord, that you would work in the hearts of all the people up and down the ladder. But we pray for the leaders especially. We know leadership begins at the top, Lord. And we pray the leaders that you place would be men and women who are godly. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Hope happy 4th of July.